This week on Writers, Inc. You know, I mean, I, I write up front. You know, the idea of a memoir makes me go, geez, a memoir? That sounds like, it, 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 with it, it carries the baggage of some sense of retirement. You know, okay, it's the Thursday part of my week. I'm going to fade off into the sunset. Catch me in the silhouette as I say goodbye. Whether you are traditionally published or indie, writing a good book is only the first step in becoming a successful author. The days of just turning a manuscript into your editor and walking away are gone. If you want to succeed in today's publishing world, you need to understand every aspect of the business. Editing, formatting, marketing, contracts. It all starts with a good book. Then the real work begins. Join international best-selling author J.D. Barker and indie powerhouse Jay Thorne as they gain unique insight and valuable advice from the most prolific and accomplished authors in the business. The publishing world is changing, adapting. Do you have what it takes to become a full-time writer? If you're willing to do the work, we'll give you the tools. Get your notepad out. School's in session. This is Writer's In. JD, how you doing, man? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing great. Doing great. That's, uh, you know, it's cold and dark, but that is the season. Yeah, I think I got myself in trouble today. So we, I, I'm guessing you got a lot of snow too. Like, it's, yeah, yeah, we we got pounded up here, and we got um, if I had to guess, like maybe 18 inches or two feet or or something like that. Um, and we had uh, I've got a guy who plows my driveway. You know, he just comes through with his truck and he just hits the whole thing. So we ended up with these you know, fairly decent sized hills because we're already on you know, a hill to begin with, like our house is. And then he just backed all the snow up onto that. And my daughter was out there yesterday, and she was having like so much fun. I mean, she's she's three, so like she's only had you know this is you know third third time really um you know like to, to actually get out there and play in the snow but like she was out there sledding and my my crazy evil neighbor like came out and told my wife you know oh that looks dangerous i don't think you should let her do that that close to the street and like we live on a cul-de-sac and like the only traffic we actually get is our neighbors you know like our t our two neighbors so it's not like there's people coming up and down here um but like she kind of freaked out my wife a little bit and then my wife was like well maybe i shouldn't you know we shouldn't be playing in the front yard and she was going to bring her to the backyard where we also have hills but they're not as good and like i've been a kid like you want the big big hills steep yeah, yeah so um i, I kind of doubled down and i, I reached out to a, the, the guy that works on the island here who's got a backhoe and i had him come out here this morning and he took all the available snow like in the area and like literally tripled the size of the hill in the front of my house <laughs> <laughs> and my neighbor was standing in her driveway watching this guy do this and my daughter is out there right now playing on it and <laughs> i just i don't want this woman telling me what to do and i'm not going to let her screw up my, my kid's childhood like that no way so yeah so i just made like mount Olympus in my front yard with with snow just to you know make my daughter happy and to piss off my neighbor kind of a combo combo win-win for me I'm impressed that you're here today I'd be out on that mound of snow all day <laughs> I'll be out there in a little bit I'll be out there you know doing my, my typical daily run <laughs> what Fantastic. else is going on uh, I had a um, few good interviews this week coming up on the podcast we don't ever mention ahead of time because uh, just in case something goes wrong tech wise but some really interesting uh, interviews coming up and it's uh, I just love I love having the opportunity to ask creatives about their process like there's just something very satisfying about that and uh, and and not that everyone does everything the exact same way but you pull these little nuggets and these little moments out and you're like I can try that and I feel like every one of those makes you a little bit better so it's just always a really fulfilling conversation well I, I think what listeners are, are about to learn is that that process doesn't change no matter who you really are 
um, you know, the person that we've got coming up in a few minutes, you know, this is this is somebody that I've been watching for years on in television and movies. And, you know, his process for putting this book together was identical to literally anybody else that, that needed to write something like this. Um, so for those people who don't know, we've got Matthew McConaughey on today. <laughs> so, um, and, and he's got a memoir I'll call Green Lights, which is absolutely fantastic. Um, it's it's probably one of the favorite memoirs that I've ever, uh, I listened to it. Did you read it or did you listen to it? I read it. You read it. Okay. Now, did his stories come across like, because like when you listen to it, like he, he narrates the audio book. So it's Matthew McConaughey telling you these crazy stories from his, his whole life. But like, did that feel come across in the, the written word? It did, surprisingly. And I, I had, I had wanted to listen to it, but but I the the time I didn't have enough time to listen. I knew I could read it faster, so I read it. Uh, but even in that, his 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 voice is so distinct, and I, and I think, um, yeah, it, it just it just he's a writer, you know, and yeah. and 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 it reads that way, and uh, yeah, it, it clearly came across. Cool. All right. Well, we've got a couple of housekeeping things. Let's knock those out and, and get to it. Yeah, uh, just gonna a uh, couple reminders. We have the Writers Inc. survey, uh, listener survey that's available until the end of February, and uh, one lucky listener will get a one-on-one with JD. So make sure you go ahead and do that. Link will be in the show notes. We also have just a few weeks left on the Career Author Summit installment plan. So if you're interested in coming to Nashville in September and joining us at the summit, uh, you can take that installment plan offer before March 1st. Also want to give a nice shout out to Kobo Writing Life, our wonderful sponsor. They empower you, the author, to take your self-publishing career into your own hands with simple tools to publish your books in any country you please. So make sure to check them out at KoboWritingLife.com, and uh, we always appreciate their support. All right, everybody, put your seatbelt on, get ready. Here he is, Matthew McConaughey. Uh, So when was the last time you tackled a sleeping cow? Last time I tackled a sleeping cow. Great opening question. Um, <laughs> 99, getting ready for Rain of Fire and that story you're talking about. I haven't tackled many since that one gave me a concussion. <laughs> I will say this. Since then, though, um, about six years ago, we were at, me and my older brother Rooster were at. Um, his son is a bull rider. And we went to a rodeo. And um, my brother's as you know from the stories, we're probably more comfortable or confident dealing with like dangerous mammals and me with than we are with dealing with like broken glass and and and, and people in, in with knives and stuff. We we gotta have a tr- we have a bit of a trust we feel like we can have sometimes. So we've taken some risk. I remember there was a corral of bulls, all bull big full horns, and there was about eighty of them in a corral. And it was about we got up, we were looking at, we were looking at him and all of a sudden it was, it was dark. And he goes, you ready little brother? And I knew what he was saying. Let's cross right through the corral in the middle. And they were, they were close. Let's And it was about 25 yards across the corral. And we climbed over and slid right through there and made it through. That's how you talk about a buzz. That's how I didn't tackle <laughs> any that night, but made it through a, a bunch of them. Uh, the last one I've tackled was on my ranch back in 99, though, and I got knocked out. So it sounds like those days are behind you. We'll, we'll see. Yeah, we'll, <laughs> we'll see. Right now, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty, you know, you know how it is. You do some things, you get away with them in your life, and you look back as you get older, and you go, geez, I'm so glad I didn't know now what I knew then, because I would have been more nervous then. <laughs> or I wouldn't have done it either, right? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Well, you wrote uh, that it was time to get rid of the filters and that you had to quit acting like me and be me. So I'd love to know why you felt like this was the time in your life to write the memoir. 
Well, the filters, what I mean literally by the filters is look, as an actor, which I love doing, I'm doing someone else's script. I'm directed by somebody else. I'm being lensed in a camera by someone else and I'm being edited by someone else before my initial raw, my original raw expression gets to you on a screen. That's four filters. So the book, I was like, look, that's one filter, the written word. No filters would be this, the live performance. Right. And, and, and there's no take two and it's the, you get the visual, you get the audio, but the, the written word was one filter. And I was like, you know what? That's, I don't feel like going and directing a movie. This will be the closest of me going to my script. I'm directing it. I'm editing it. I'm lensing it to share it with you in a written word. And then also the challenge of I've told a lot of these stories. I performed these stories, campfires, dinners, etc. And I was like, wow, can you do the written word where it still feels like it's in your voice without having the the attribute of you being able to perform it, with you being able to hear my intonation, with you being able to see my eyebrow raise, with you being able to see my smile and the tears well up in my eyes when I'm telling you a very violent story about my mom and dad fighting because I see it as a love story? Can I get that across in a written word where you don't have any of that that I'm giving you? That was a challenge I was wanting to, uh, uh, I felt like I could do. I was hoping I could do it, and I, I, I hope I did to whatever extent. Yeah, I'd say so. Do you feel like it was a, an issue of the, the timing needing to be right or, or just your own confidence in being able to step into that that single filter? I think the second. I mean, you know, I mean, I, I write up front, you know, the idea of a memoir <laughs> makes me go, geez, a memoir. That sounds like, it, it, with it, it carries the baggage of some sense of retirement. You know, okay, it's the Thursday part of my week. I'm going to fade off into the sunset. Catch me in the silhouette as I say goodbye. No, I didn't want it to feel like that. So I wanted it. I wanted the. I was like, how can it be? Yeah, it's going to be chronologically a memoir of my last 50 years, but it needs to feel vital. It needs to feel like a verb because I'm. I feel like I'm just. If I play my cards right, I'm possibly heading into the most exciting times of my life coming up. So it was how to make it feel vital without being sort of retrospective or audio. You know, you see memoirs, people are retiring. People are going, I'm, I'm going to go play golf. You know, I'm, and that's not what I'm doing. So I think it was more the, the second, saying the courage, because I've been daring myself to take that treasure chest full of diaries away to see what the hell was in there for 15 years. I just hadn't had the balls to do it until two years ago when I took this away with the book, partially, mostly because of fear. Man, I'm embarrassed. I'm going to be ashamed. I'm going to feel guilty. I'm going to look back at an arrogant little prick I was at times and go, God, I can't believe you were that guy. And I did. I went back and looked at those things and all those things happened. But I noticed that most of the things that I was embarrassed about, I laughed my ass off at. Most of the things I was ashamed about and felt guilty about, I was like, oh, I already forgave you for that. And then I also noticed that times where I was that arrogant little prick, where I was like, you little Mr. Know-it-all punk. I was like, ah, I noticed in the stories, very soon after my most arrogant, egotistical times in my life, I got humiliated. And I look back, I was like, oh, if you would have been so arrogant, you wouldn't have had the confidence to put yourself in the position to get absolutely humbled, man. So I was like, oh, okay, that all adds up. I, I can deal with that. But then you wouldn't have the stories. Wouldn't that, that's the other thing. You know, and I was talking to somebody yesterday about some stuff that I've done or like the African trip to go say yes to the wrestling match. I'd be fibbing if, you know, I have enough ham in me inherently to even in a time like that where I've taken risk 
10% of the voice in my ear that's saying you got to do this is also saying it's at least going to be a great story. (laughs) (laughs) No doubt about that. So you went into the desert, you went into the woods of East Texas, the Mexican border, New York City. Bring me into that. Were you on a laptop? Were you with a legal pad? How did you how did you take these raw journals and diary entries and, and pull them into something cohesive? Well, so about 12 years ago, I took a, uh, a couple of weeks off to go try and hike, go through uh, uh, transcribing things from journals to laptop and then and 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 i figure i made it through 25 percent of the journals or i pulled 25 percent out of the journals i got through all the journals but i pulled 25 percent out what this was when i went away to go write the book is i said okay because that document was you know four thousand pages long I, i then said okay let's go look at that don't worry about uncovering that other 75% you haven't. Trust that I think you may have found the greatest hits or some of them uh, then. And let's go through and let's start highlighting what we got. See if we have categories that pop up. See if we have consistent themes that pass. And what, what cropped up was a big stack of, oh, that's a bunch of stories. Another big stack, oh, that's a bunch of cool people, interesting people. Then there were places, there were prescribes, poems, prayer, and bumper stickers. So I had these seven or eight stacks, however many that is. And I was like, okay, that seems to be the categories of what I've been writing about. Now let's look through those and see what reveals itself, which hence comes the title Green Lights. And you know, the prescribes, that was that began, that started off like, it feels like it, it, it's advice, it's lectures. But I was like, I don't like getting advice and I don't like being lectured. <laughs> and I don't think anybody else does either. Right. So... Prescription was a word that I came up with. I was like, that sounds like I'd, I'd go, I'd, I want to go up. I'd, I'd rather take a prescribe from me than advice or a lecture. So I was like, let's call it a prescribe and, and pose it, you know, as, again, what person in the first person, I, second person, you, or, or the royal we? Well, advice usually comes across in the second person, you. You should do this. You should, oh, well, I, I want to stick my finger down my throat when people are telling me that crap. So it was about how do I make those where they're like, no, this is how I felt about it. And I try to stay away from the you, the second person you. And if I think the best stories that if I told them the most personally and the individual first person subjective, they then inherently became more relatable to the royal we of humanity. And was there, uh, were you on any kind of deadline or was it all sort of self-imposed? This was self-imposed. Look, I started out two and a half years ago when I did finally get the courage to say, I want to see what's, see what's in those, in that treasure chest of diaries. I found a ghostwriter. I had a ghostwriter come on and we met one time and I was like, okay, this is about as much confidence as I have as to at least say, I'll go see with a ghostwriter what I have. And that ghostwriter worked for the New York Times. The New York Times pulled him off the project because they had a new policy saying you can't work, I think, with celebrities on a memoir. He gets pulled just as I go, oh, shit, what am I going to do? I think I got to find another. I stopped right then. I was like, oh, no, this is a gift. This is exactly what you're supposed to do. You got to go write it. And as I realized that, I turned around. My wife's in the room. She was like, yeah. Exactly. No shit. Get out of here. You go. 
Oh, so she she kind of gave you the the green light. She gave me the kick in the backside. Like this is what you should have done all along. I was like, okay, here we go. Let's go find out. That's that's the courage, man. That's finding the courage, right? Yeah. You know, I, I was I couldn't help but be struck by sort of the connection and the resonance you have with John Mellencamp's music. And uh, Aha is one of my favorite records of all time. And as uh -huh. I'm reading, yeah, as I'm reading your memoir, I'm like, man, you, you evoke some of the same feelings and vibrations and emotions in me that Mellencamp does. Do you, right. do you feel like you have a, a similar artistic style? Wow, great question. Look, man, he, look, my brother introduced me to him on those, you know, I'm, I'm young teen, he's 17, 18, he'd get home by his 12, 1230 curfew, right? Come wake me up. I'd run out in his my tidy whities and sit in the shotgun seat of his Z28. And we'd put a huh in there and rewind. There's a, there, 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 you know, there, there, there's a warmer place to sleep, I think, is uh, Matt Wanchek's in the background. They starts off, Hey, what the fuck? You hear it in the background. Wanchek goes, hey, what the fuck? And we used to rewind that like we were get, like we were sneaking, like we were young kids looking at Playboys in the barn. Did you hear what he said, man? Hey, what the fuck? <laughs> rewind. Da -da 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 -da. Hey, what the fuck? <laughs> so he turns me on to Uh-Huh, which is a great rock album. Play guitar, airing off on the drums, just banging them. And then I start to follow him. And then Lonesome Jubilee. Yes. <laughs> Talk about patriotism, equality, way to look at the world, races, sexes, uh, cherry bomb, you know, the video, the white guys in the little, in the little Southern diner dancing with the black girl. And then, and then I go out to Hollywood, I get an agent, I find out that the music agent in CAA is actually his agent. And I go down to the music agent and say, look, anything comes up with Mellencamp, let me know. Well, bam, three weeks later, He's got this Key West Intermozo uh, um, um, uh, video. He'd love for you to be in it. And so we get in that, and he goes, look, you know, they said they're going to cast the girl. And I brought up the idea of Karen Alexander, this uh, black model. And that got to Mellencamp. Mellencamp was like, perfect. And that was a callback from Cherry Bomb, right? Let's make it an interracial thing, right? And so then I meet him, John Mellencamp. Don't call me Cougar. <laughs> um, and here's what I find out. Uh, his son's name HUD. My dog's name Miss HUD. And my dog, I named my dog Miss HUD before his son was even born. Oh, wow. Our favorite movie, HUD. He's got lyrics from that. Why you stand on the porch? Make me feel like you're selling something. That's a line in HUD. He also loves Cool Hand Luke. So all of a sudden we start finding out these things where we're kind of, you know, sons or brothers from another mother. And I talked to him about, you know, man, you really shaped my form of patriotism, et cetera, et cetera. And then I also am this young kid with these, you know, pink houses, man. That's that, that's the America where I'm talking about. And like most heroes, when you meet him, it can be a letdown. He's a prick. And it, John, I love you. You know you are. I love it. And it's one of the great things I love about him because he's, he's like, he would tell me things like, look, man, I'm not always writing about how I think it, it is. I'm writing about how I think it ought to be. And so I remember we had a, we had a 4th of July in, 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 I think, South Carolina where I was with him. <laughs> and I was, he was, I got him to play. 
for a small group, right? I bring up, let's go back to John Cougar, 1980, I think, album. I bring up Play Chinatown. You know, remember, Welcome to Chinatown, my, my friend. I'm going to lay your body down, my friend. I ain't no queen, but I'm wearing this crown, my friend. Welcome to Chinatown. Well, I go through these lyrics, and <laughs> I won't even say that they were. Anyway, I had malapropped some lyrics that I, that he saw me sing while he was playing. He was like, stop playing. He's like, what did you just say? And I told him the line. He goes, that isn't the line, man. And I go, it's not. He goes, no, but it ought to be. It's a better <laughs> life. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, I just, I, I always liked his independence. As I said, I used to listen to him while I washed my car every Sunday with a six pack of beer in the, in the, in the driveway. And that's, he was shaping my form of what I thought America was, should be supposed to be. He was shaping my form of patriotism. He was shaping my embracing going out in the world and filling my passport. You know, um, he was he was my red, white and blue, where a lot of people's red, white and blue was Springsteen. Mellencamp was was, was mine at the time. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I even th even something like, you know, Blood on the Scarecrow, it, the storytelling in that. And uh, I mean, it's it's just timeless. Yeah. Yeah. And I still keep up with him. He, you know, he's mostly painting now. Um, I actually just talked to him five days ago. So we still keep up. Ah, that's nice. Hey, you mentioned your dad early on. I wanted to ask you something about uh, about that. Uh, you had said that for you, it was your most seminal rite of passage into manhood. And uh, that really struck me because I feel like this is something I don't, I don't see that sentiment in a lot of places, but I think it's universally true. Um, you, were, you, were a bit, you were in your 20s when you lost your dad, but... 23, I think. Thing, 20, 22, 23. Years. Right. So, I mean, you, you were, you were a man, you know, um, how, what does it mean when you, you lose that safety net if you lose your dad when, when you're a man? I mean, that, that's, that was really powerful. Well, you sober up. I mean, I think I, for me, the world got flat. And what I mean by that is, you know, here my dad's teaching me things, the man who, the man I should be, and I'm, I'm, I'm testing it out in life, and I'm, I'm acting like that, that young man that my dad wants me to be, the things I want to take in life, but I'm not doing it 100%, because why, man, he's got my back, he's here, he's above government and law, hell, he's even bigger than religion, if I get in a pinch, he's got my back, all of a sudden, he's gone, physically gone, whoa, I got no crutch. I got no safety net. I got no hammock back there. Oh, those things that I've been kind of making C's in, those values of the man he's been teaching me to be that I've been kind of half-assing, I better either own them because he's not, he doesn't have my back anymore on it. So for me, I remember it. And then it, 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 the less impressed, more involved is what hit me in his passing, along with just keep living. But the less impressed, more involved came as I noticed there were things in the world, mortal things that I was in awe of. People, success, money, wow, what if? And when I would be faced with those or get near those, I'd get like shy, I'd less involved. I'd be like too, well, those things sort of lowered down to eye level. And I was like, look those in the eye, man. Those are mortal. Better man up on that shit. Also, the things that I was looking down on, things that I was sloughing off, so that's not good enough for me. Uh, I don't like her, him, that, the other. I was condescending, you know, patronizing things in my life. I was like, whoa, who the hell do you think you are being all high on your horse looking down on those things? Those things rose up. 
to eye level. So all of a sudden, that's what I mean when I say the world was flat. When everything became at eye level, the things I was in, revered came down to just where I respected them, and the things I looked down upon came up to where I still respected them. I saw further and wider and clearer and stood up taller. My heart was higher. My chin was higher. My eyes were look you right in the eye and go, yeah, I own it. Yes, what? Guilty either way. I'm going to own my shit. It's time to start owning it. And that's part of becoming a man is to start owning your shit. Um, and not going where before dad's alive, I'm kind of renting my shit. You know what I mean? So your dad goes, you go, no, I got, I don't have that. I don't have that landlord to, to take care of my bill. I'm, I got better own who I am. And so I gained courage in that. I gained confidence in that. Um, I, got, I learned, I, I was willing to sacrifice more to not sell myself short, to not sell my soul along the way. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I lost my dad when I was 46 and I felt the same way. I felt like, I mean, I have, you know, I have a wife and two kids and a mortgage and a car payment. And yet I felt like no matter what, I still had my dad. Like I still have my, I could, I could fall back on him. And, and then I didn't. And even as a grown man, it was, it was a jarring situation. Did it, did it do, what did it do to you? Did you, like at 46, how long goes that? that you, it was uh, two, two years ago. Three years How ago? the last like did you get re-energized or anything? Did you invest more in your family? Do you invest more in certain things that became more important to you? Things that already were important to you, did they become more important? Did you double down on some of those things? I doubled down on life, man. I just you know, I mean, my dad went at seventy. I know your dad was much younger, but seventy these days isn't old, and he was gone like that. And I was like, man, I gotta, I, you know, I gotta, be, I gotta be making the most of every day. And, and not that I wasn't, but I still, I, I felt this added emphasis of making the most of every minute. Yeah. Yeah. Someone asked me this morning, you know, you know, my dad, when I went to decide to go to film school, which led to me starting what's now become a career, his words to me were don't half ass it. And I was reminded this morning, well, how much of, how much of him saying that to me and me feeling like, oh, I'm not only doing this for me, I got to do it for him too, has been part of maybe why I've succeeded at, at achieving what I've achieved at it. Um, because before, for me, before I started film school and he gave me the approval and the privilege and the freedom to go pursue career storytelling, everything else I'd done in life was a fad. Everything else I'd said, please, come on, invest in me in this, dad. They were little hobby fads that I never followed through on. So the fact that my dad lived five days into my first role in Days Confused, a little serendipitous for me because I'm like, oh, he was alive for me to start the one damn thing that I'm going to finish. The one thing he gave you the nod on you didn't think you were going to get. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, good stuff, man. Well, hey, I, I want to uh, wrap up with a, uh, a short two-parter here. Hopefully this is a fun question for you. Uh, do you get another book in you and, or a, uh, a work of fiction maybe? Um, I believe so. Um, you know, the, uh, I lean into nonfiction because like in writing this, I was reminded, geez, there's so much reality that if we look at it the right way, you can get off to it. Um, and so I'm, I, I love nonfiction, but I'm like, well, I want to make sure I'm giving enough justice to the nonfiction, to the documentary of life to see that to where it's a real buzz before I got to go into my imagination to create something else. At the same time, over the last 15 years of my acting career, I think I've, I've, I've improved in my craft 
because I more quickly go to the imagination, meaning I used to all be about, give me the facts. I want to know the definition. Well, I think I became more creative when I was like, no, I don't want to know. I don't want the up close. Give me the impression. I like the fuzzy edges. I, I, I like the I, I like the romantic view from afar from what I thought it was. Don't tell me exactly what it was. I like I like where I went where I thought it was. So that would lead me into embracing nonfiction or the imagination sooner. I've got a children's story um, called Curtis My Love about the greatest fisherman in the world has never known. And I always thought it was going to be a script, but that would be for a movie or a series. But it may not be. It may it may be a book, and then maybe it could become. Uh, um, uh, a movie after that, but I could write that. I'm thinking about writing that out as far as nonfiction would be that. Um, or maybe I I'm thinking about having some of the nonfiction stuff that I'm working on for the next green lights would my right now would be chasing yet. Um, uh, and it would be nonfiction, another approach to life book, but it may be something that could go through a narrative, nonfictional, a fictional narrative with my man, Curtis, my love. So it could be encapsulized in a fable or a parable. Um, so I'm playing with that. I don't want to recook the souffle of green lights, even though a lot of my ideas of green lights have crystallized over the last 14 weeks of talking about it with people. Um, I I don't want to recook the souffle. So I want to see if I got something, if I feel like I got some original thought that's keeping me up at night over and over and over and makes me want to go, I want to go off alone <laughs> for 52 days again. Yeah, then hopefully that would be something worth sharing. All right, man. I don't even know where to start. <laughs> well, I, I'm I'm fairly certain this guy's brother Rooster is going to get him killed. Like we're <laughs> we're I'm going to wake up one day, open up my news app on my phone, and it and it's going to say Matthew McConaughey died in some freak bull accident or or something <laughs> something crazy, and his brother Rooster is going to be you know standing right there with his mouth shut, pretending he wasn't involved somehow. I, I think if your nickname is Rooster, there's already <laughs> a story in there. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing with with this guy, you know, like, and it's funny because like he, he talks about filters and, you know, you don't really think about it, but like none of us really know, you know, who Matthew McConaughey is. We, we know the characters that he's played and we know the personas that he's become for us in, in all these different TV shows and movies. But, you know, n none of us can really say that we know the guy. Um, and, and that's, you know, wh wh what he's getting at with, with filters. So this this chance for, for him to put a memoir together, it, it's really him stripping all that away. And, and you know, it's literally just him you know, all, all by himself. And, you know, it, it's very similar to when you, when you write a novel, you know, and I've heard this before too, like you, you know, you write a book and like that book is, is you, like that's you, the author, that's your voice. Um, the second a narrator takes it over and, and does it, that's their take on your, your voice. So it, it's already changed there. Um, and then when it gets adopted into television or film, it's, you know, it's totally different, but this is, this is, you know, raw, unfiltered Matthew McConaughey. Yeah, it, it certainly is. And, and I think too, you know, we didn't, we didn't get to it in the interview, um, but uh, his his memoir has something like thirty seven thousand reviews and it, on Amazon, and it's like a four point seven or four point eight average. That that doesn't happen just on celebrity status. That has to be a good book. It has to be a good read. It has to be high quality, and uh, and clearly people think it is. And that's just really a credit to him because. Uh, to be sort of world-class in, in one industry or one profession or, or one skill, uh, and then to transfer that over co to a completely new medium is really impressive. 
he's he's a natural born storyteller. I mean, you can you can hear it in his voice. You know, if, if you forget who he is, and and this guy, you know, just it happens to be at a party that you're at, like this, you can tell that this is the guy that everybody is crowding around and listening to as he tells these particular stories. And he mentioned that, you know, like he does some of these things simply because, you know, like one of the thoughts is, well, this is going to make for a good story. And and also, you know, what he he threw out there, you know, his his facial expressions and things like that. Like he he's conscious about that, like as he's telling these things. So, you know that. To a certain extent, I mean, he is playing Matthew McConaughey, um, but you know, it, 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 again, it's un, unfiltered. Yeah, and I don't know if if you had this feeling or not, um, but you know, he's we're all about the same age, and I've always felt like he was the best representation of my generation. He, he you know, like he was he's sort of a maverick. He's an individual, but he's artistic and articulate, uh, multifaceted. And, uh, and I think that came across in, in the interview, too. He, he approaches life from a very holistic perspective. He doesn't take anything for granted. And, and he's really got a salt-of-the-earth vibe about him that, that it's just really appealing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, just the fact that he was able to put a memoir together on his own, like he had brought up that he, he spoke to a ghostwriter early on. Um, and I've, I've ghostwritten memoirs before for, for other people, politicians and, and sports stars and, and things like that. And for the most part, the way that process works is, you know, like I'll give you an example. I met with a politician and, and at a retreat for a weekend. Um, she sat down in one chair. I sat down in the other. We had a tape recorder between us. And, you know, I just started pulling stories out of her. Um, she wasn't capable of like she could tell me those stories, but like I had to really you know dig in there get her to start talking and you know like interview her to it and, and get these little pieces out and then you get all that together and then try and put it together into a cohesive you know storyline like yeah, McConaughey like he, he did this all on his own you know and, and that's a rare talent you know you know first a lot of people do journal a lot of people keep diaries but to be able to go back to that and and pull apart the you know find the pieces that are going to work in a memoir and then throw it into a cohesive storyline and and organize it the way that he did all on his own first time out of the gate I mean that, that is seriously impressive yeah yeah, and uh, you know, as as he talked about, uh, he he doesn't want to do green lights again, and he has some other ideas f for what might be next. And I kind of get the feeling that this might just be the beginning for him, uh, as far as a, you know, a career as a, a memoirist or or a writer in general. And uh, I'm definitely looking forward to more. I, I was, uh, like I said, I, I thought the book was incredible. Um, it was so entertaining, and uh, and the stories were were wonderful. Yeah, I mean, he, he he gives off that vibe like this is somebody you really want to hang out with. Um, but at, at the same time, if you do, you need to double check your insurance and just make sure everything's up to date before you get in that car. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess he's not he hasn't been tackling any uh, any cattle recently. So I guess that's that's good. <laughs> you never know. There's always tomorrow. Rooster is on the other end of that speed dial, I guess. Yeah. Anytime roosters in play, watch out. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> All right. What's up next week? So next week we have John Lee Hancock joining us. He is the triple threat, the writer, director, and producer of the new movie, The Little Things, starring Denzel Washington, Rami Malek, and Jared Leto. Nice. Um, it's Hollywood week over here at Writer's Inc., huh? <laughs> yeah. Uh, this is a great movie. Uh, it's It's got a really unique... Uh, distribution plan thanks to the pandemic it was uh, it's in some select theaters now based on covid restrictions but it was also it's also uh, out now on hbo max so if you have hbo max you can uh, watch this brand new movie in your home 
Well, John Lee Hancock is a fascinating guy. He's been around Hollywood for a long time, um, and and he's like he's a triple threat. He's a writer, a producer, and and a director um, of a lot of big name movies. If if you get a chance, just you know head out on Wikipedia and just take a look at his his back catalog. And I think he's um you know because we're required to mention Stephen King in every episode. I'm pretty <laughs> sure that he's doing uh, Mr. Harrigan's phone as his next project. He um, is. With, I'm going to be yeah, sure to ask his, him about that. Yeah, it's based on a short story from from King's latest um, book, If It Bleeds. So, yeah, this is going to be great. Can't wait to hear it. Yeah, it is it is going to be a lot of fun. And uh, this won't spoil anything, but he, he started writing The Little Things 28 years ago. Uh, and it was a contemporary thriller when he was starting to write it and uh, just finished it. And so now it's a period piece set in the early 90s in L.A. So, uh, yeah, it's it, this is going to be a fun conversation. It was a great movie. My wife and I loved it. We just finished it, I guess, about three days ago. Yeah, I loved it, too. Really uh, thoughtful ending, uh, which I think we'll probably talk about, too. Yeah, absolutely. To our listeners, make sure you go to writersincpodcast.com and grab the free revision masterclass where you can see the storytelling process from beginning to end. We'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers, Inc., Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com. The plum! Yeah, man, I think y'all need to bring that back and be like, we're the plum, man. They're the big apple, we're the plum.